0: Hello and welcome to Section. My name is Jeanne Anthony Pillay and I'm a journalist for SciSection Radio Show broadcast on the CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We're here today with Dr. Frank Prado, the founder of the Lawson Imaging Research Program. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Uh, thank you for interviewing me, mm-hmm.
0: Jeremy. So to begin, could you talk about the Lawson Imaging Research Program you founded? How did it commence and what were some of the challenges you have seen at the very start?
1: Yes, uh, I work uh, uh, I've been working at St. Joseph's Hospital, which later became St. Joseph's Health Center since uh, August, 1976. And uh, I was just—I hired as a medical physicist to help grow the nuclear medicine program at that hospital. Um, uh, some uh, visionaries at the hospital oh, who d- decided that maybe we should have a wing of the hospital dedicated to medical research. And uh, that started to be put together in 1980, 1981. And in 1982, I was the only medical physicist in in the hospital, but I proposed that a new technique called nuclear magnetic resonance imaging had a future uh, for patients and that it would be an excellent platform to initiate a program within the Lawson Health, the Lawson Research Institute. Uh, which um, uh, uh, would become eventually a Lawson Imaging Research Program. So um, that's that's how we started. We got interested in something that would later be called magnetic resonance imaging. It was a very early technology um, and uh, we, uh, we, we were fortunate enough to uh, get sufficient funds from various sources uh, including the uh, director of the nuclear medicine department at St. Joseph's Hospital and also some funds controlled by the, the sisters of St. Joseph's who at that time ran uh, the administration of the hospital. So with those funds we purchased and uh, we got running uh, what is now called a magnetic resonance imaging system. It was very primitive compared to the systems today. Um, it, it was running with uh, very low magnetic field strength of 0.15 tesla and uh, right now uh, the MRI imaging is done at 1.5 tesla so let's see 0.15 at 1.5 so it's about 10 times higher or 3 tesla which is uh, 20 20 times higher in field strength but uh, the images even then were very promising so We started a research program and we started what would become the imaging program uh, among other programs at the uh, Lawson Research Institute. And so that was back in December 1982. We produced the first image of a patient who had a small stroke and we could actually detect it. And I remember working with the uh, uh, nuclear medicine specialist, the MD, Uh, And we went down to coffee and looking at these images. He said, this is fantastic, Frank. We can see this very small uh, lesion in the brain and we've not been able to see that in any other way. This is really exciting. And I was concerned that maybe (laughs) maybe there was a glitch somehow in the machine and it wasn't running properly. So, so I I, it was three more years before before we started getting some funding uh, from the Ministry of Health in Ontario to pay for um, scans to be done in patients for diagnostic purposes. So we had three years of 100% research on the machine and then we progressed. And Around that machine, we built the Lawson uh, Imaging Research Program. Mm -hmm.
0: And like you said, your team produced the first human MRI in Canada, as well as the first human hybrid pet and MRI in Canada. So how did people react to these new imaging technologies at the time?
1: Well, I was a young man at the time, 30 years old, and uh, I was really pleased to, uh, to get the first image. But, in, you know, uh, uh, the group at Princess Margaret Hospital, under the directorship of Mark Henkelman and Mike Bronskill, uh, they, were, they, got, they got their first image on a s- same piece of equipment about a week later. And uh, I was, when I was a young person, I was fairly competitive, and so I can remember pushing the construction. Uh, to get to get things going and, and uh, we just made it by one week. Also, uh, the group at University of British Columbia got delivery of uh, a unit uh, but they had a little trouble getting it to work so I think we beat them by a month or two months or something like that. So uh, clearly there were about three sites in Canada that were coming online at about the same time. So um, with MRI we continue to progress and as you know MRI is a uh, is extensively used now clinically and, and research keeps going. Research keeps progressing and it's an amazing technology with amazing opportunity. It's very flexible in terms of how it makes an image and people are imagining always new ways and inventing new ways of making imaging. So MRI is very exciting. But MRI is limited in sensitivity. can do marvelous things and it doesn't expose anybody to ionizing radiation like x-ray does, but uh, it has limitations. If there's a change in your body, say a change in a cell that becomes diseased, that change has to be something like one one change in 10,000 compared to the surrounding cells. So you say, well that's a small effect and that's a small thing that can be detected with MRI. That's great, but I became interested in positron emission tomography as the technology, which has the downside of exposing individuals to ionizing radiation like x-rays, but they're called gamma rays. But the advantage of positron emission tomography, instead of seeing one part and 10,000 change, it is very sensitive. It can detect one part and a trillion. So many orders of magnitude more sensitive. and, and, and it's much more flexible because it's uh, much more sensitive. If you want to, in MRI, if you want to detect changes by injecting a contrast agent, which changes uh, the M- MRI parameters so you see where that contrast agent goes, you have to inject grams of material. If, instead, you want to see a, a, a contrast agent that is injected for positron emission tomography, you uh, only have to inject nanograms of material. And because you have to, you can only, you, you inject such small quantities in positron emission tomography, positron emission tomography is very flexible and you can make new, new contrast agents that you know eventually will be approved for human use. Whereas new contrast agents in MRI are difficult to approve for human use because you have to inject so much and people are concerned about perhaps some uh, um, unwanted, unwanted effect caused by injecting so much material. So, but MRI doesn't use x-rays. MRI um, produces exquisite images uh, of high resolution, uh, images of the body, you know, sub-millimeter, sub-millimeter. You can see about 60,000 cells in an in a individual uh, image element. Whereas with positron emission tomography, the images are more blurry but extremely sensitive. So the idea was to combine MRI and PET where MRI would produce the high resolution images and PET would produce the great sensitivity to detect disease very early on. So putting those two together was very exciting for me. So we worked very hard to raise the money to do that and we got a very large grant and It was a citywide proposal I led and we got a very large grant from the Canon Foundation for Innovation and we got basically about 35 million dollars to introduce new technologies. Now with positron emission tomography, um, unlike with MRI, with MRI if you have a contrast agent you you buy the contrast agent it stays on the shelf for a year or two years, it doesn't matter, then you can inject it into a patient and there is one approved contrast agent basically in MRI with positron emission tomography, we inject radioactive material. And that material uh, is designed so that we reduce the radiation dose to the patient. It's designed to disappear very quickly. It disappears so quickly that you have to make it locally. If we want to make it locally, we have to make radioactive material using a particle accelerator. So this large grant, large, large part of it was to build uh, or to buy a particle accelerator that we would install in in the basement of Saint Joseph's Hospital. So that's what we did and 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 we started the project about 12 years ago. It took a long time to get get everything going. Um, We had to get approval from Health Canada, approval from the regulatory agencies in Canada that control the use of radioactive material. We had to hire a team uh, and uh, and then we started doing some experiments that no one else can do almost in the world. For example, uh, because we have the penMR system right next to this particle accelerator, we can produce things which have a half-life that is half of it disappears in two minutes. So, and, and you can use something for about five or six half-lives. So you, you make it, you have to test it that it's safe to be injected into the patients, into humans. And then you have to use it within 10 minutes and you have to co- collect, you have to inject it into the patient uh, within three or four minutes. And then you have to collect the images and everything's sort of done 12 minutes after the material is made. So this is not an easy thing to do. You have to have the chemists, you have to have the, the people who know how to run the particle accelerator. Uh, You have to have testing to make sure that the thing, whatever you're going to inject is safe. And and then you have to transport it to the pet MRI, you have to inject it, and you have to be doing the imaging very quickly. So um, that's the technology that that I've introduced. So I was happy, pleased, fortunate to be able to introduce MRI into say London, Ontario and, and Canada. And then with MRI, we were fortunate to introduce that into Canada. We were the first in Canada and we remained the first for about three or four years. Now there are instruments in other parts of Canada. And um, it was about the fifth unit in, in the world at that point in time. So, um, and, and the unit has, has remained largely research. And so uh, we're doing research work that, that many other people can't do, so, for example, there is a, a pen MRI in the, uh, this Cedar Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, but uh, they come up to our site here in London, Ontario, to do research because I have been able to coordinate with with the help of many uh, a unique infrastructure that allows us to do experiments uh, that really can't be done uh, in in very very few of any places in the world. So. That's given us some excitement of things to do. I'm not doing all that work. Well, I, I've over the, the, the years, uh, over, or I've been at St. Joe's 44 years. Over that period of time, I've been able to recruit some outstanding people. And I've been able to recruit people with different skills, different disciplines. You know, we have an engineer running our cyclotron facility, for example. Uh, we have people with appointments in physics, appointments in medical biophysics, appointments in uh, cardiology, uh, uh, appointments in biomedical engineering. So I've been able to put a group together. And I could show you some examples at some point in time, how it's important. Because the excitement for me right now as an old guy, is we can do many sophisticated things because we have the talent and the mix of talent and the interdisciplinary talent. Uh, we can do things that that uh, I couldn't imagine doing on my own uh, when I first started out.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm
1: going off a bit on a tangent. Old men tend to do that, and I apologize.
0: I <laughs> know. It's perfect. It's really fascinating, so thank you for that. And I know you've done an immense amount of research, and some of them have included MRI in them. But what would you say is like your most recent research,
1: research work? I've given that some thought, and uh, I... It's not an easy question to, uh, to, to, to answer. Mm-hmm. I think the most exciting things I'm doing now are, are buried. They're not just in one area. And that's because I have some outstanding people with interdisciplinary skills. So, uh, for example, one of the things that happened recently, uh, I went on a trip to China a few years ago. And someone was talking to me, and they said, "Do you know so and so at your institute? He's famous. He's he's developed." Uh, poop transplantation that is saving people's lives where, you know, the, 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 the bacteria in their gut is resistant to all sorts of antibiotics. Do you know this guy? This guy's doing fantastic stuff. And I said, no, I don't know who he is. Well, he had an office two or three doors from, down from me. <laughs> so so, and, and so uh, then I met him and then we talked about, and he said, you know, the, one, of the, one of the greatest uh, uh, problems we have in, in, in our business, uh, bacteriology business, is we can't image bacteria. We don't know what's going on. We, we give bacteria to people. We put bacteria, probiotics, and yogurt. We put billions of bacteria on the yogurt. We ask people to eat it. We don't know where it goes. We don't know if it stays in the body. We don't know if it just goes right through with the poop. And, and you know, I, I was very surprised to hear that uh, dried poop is 40% by weight bacteria. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, we put a group together. Just, uh, just before Christmas, the team, uh, uh, we were shut down for, for a while, justifiably because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so we couldn't do any experiments, but uh, we did recently, uh, finally, uh, we, we thought this theory, we, we filed the provisional patent, and then I've been trying to excite companies to fund us, and they want to see some results in animals. And so we, we got a farm pig, and uh, we were able to image the bacteria in the pig using pet MRI. And we gave them a probiotic that is often in uh, yogurt. And we determined what percent stayed in the gut, which was less than a percent uh, in a week's time. We use the pig because the pig has uh, a GI system similar to humans. They, they, they're omnivorous like humans are. You know, you couldn't use a dog because the dog's carnivorous and stuff like that. And we wanted to use an animal that's large enough because what we do is we image large animals on the same equipment we do humans, so that if we find something that can be used for humans, we can immediately do it for humans. If you're doing work in small animals, imaging doesn't always translate linearly to to humans. So we we do like to use larger animals like pigs. And uh, we found out what percent stayed in the gut. We found out that some leaked out, a small percentage, and we found that some of it went to the liver and the kidney but none went to the brain and the heart and this is a healthy animal. So uh, we're very excited about that, haven't published it yet, that's one excitement. Um, I'm really excited about the work I'm doing with an outstanding scientist in the United States at Cedar sinai in terms of heart. Um, he's been coming up to do experiments uh, at our site because he can't do them where he is in the United States and um, we've discovered ways of, of diagnosing heart disease uh, we, the present technique for diagnosing heart disease requires uh, 24 hours one study and then the person has to come back for another study two injections of radioactive material another injection of a, 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 a pharmaceutical and so days 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 of imaging and three injections and we we've shown in, in an animal model that we can do it all in one hour without any injections. And this would affect in Canada about 400,000 tests per year, moving them from three injections over overnight to a one hour study using no radioactive material. So that's exciting, that's exciting for me. Um, doing a lot of work supporting excellent work that's going on in cardiology in the city, trying to, for women who have left breast cancer, who receive radiation therapy, uh, they're living longer now. It's just the therapy successful, but the heart uh, sometimes is getting radiation. And later on, they sometimes run into heart problems. So we developed in a large animal a technique for early diagnosis of any potential complications that might arise in later life. And uh, we have a student now, and, I, and I'm not the leader of this project, this uh, outstanding group at the London Regional Cancer Centre that uh, are starting to, and I think we've done our fifth patient now, trying to translate what we found in, in the animals to, to the patients. So that's one other thing we're doing. Um, I'm very excited about another graduate student. I started something about 15 years ago to try to produce for animals uh, a contrast agent for, uh, for mri it's, it, it's for preclinical, it's not for human use, where we take DNA from bacteria and program that DNA into cells, mammalian cells. So we're taking bacterial DNA and put it in mammalian cells and then uh, we turn that uh, uh, set of genes on at a particular point when the cell is doing something. So we can inject the cell, the cells can grow, they're all silent, we don't see them. And then all of a sudden when a cell say changes from one kind of a cell to another kind of a cell, it could be a cancer cell, it could be uh, moving from a stem cell to a a cardiac cell, uh, then all of a sudden it lights up. So we believe once we get this technology going, we'll be able to get MRI to a sensitivity close to PET, positron emission tomography, instead of having be limited to about 60,000 cells we will be getting down to uh, uh, 300 cells. So that's very exciting, but that's been a very, very difficult thing. I was naive when I got involved. I thought just like uh, the other reported genes in in optical imaging like fluorescence and bioluminescence, the bioluminescence was taken from fireflies, fireflies and modeled after that, that was only one gene. It's turning out that the bacteria produce this MRI contrast agent just serendipitously to produce it. They produce it for other purposes, but we found out that they produce it, and it is the greatest, it's strongest contrast agent it, it known in MRI. If we can get normal cells to produce this stuff, it'll, they'll just light up. So, But I didn't know. I thought it was just one gene. At the time I started uh, 15 years, 12 years ago, it was only one gene, people thought, but it turns out to be uh, a cluster of genes. So the problem has become... Uh, uh, much more challenging, but we have people working on this right now, and we have our patents and uh, so that 's exciting. so you ask me what i 'm doing, and i 'm doing some exceptional things because I have an outstanding group of people with 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 skills that fit together to each other to do things that that we, we just can't do re- re- really anywhere else in the world so for me that 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 's a very exciting thing to be seventy four years old and now to be able to uh, benefit from an outstanding team, and many people have stayed with me for 10, 20, 30 years now, um, with an outstanding team of scientists and and technologists. You know, if we're doing animal work, we need outstanding people know how to handle animals safely, keep them safe, anesthetize them because they won't stand still for imaging and, and, and then recovering them, treating them well. Uh, it's a it's a, a tremendous pleasure to 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 be able to do things that, that that are important that are important for translation to patients. I I often try to say I got a statement here that uh, uh, you know we, we we have a a stewardship responsibility when we're doing research in a hospital-based research institute. We have a stewardship responsibility to our patients to make available the latest and best technology for early diagnosis and treatment towards cures. We have a stewardship responsibility to translate new technology when possible from our academic centers to community hospitals. We have a stewardship responsibility to make available novel new therapies not funded by provincial healthcare. And I just really believe that research is an essential part of the patient care continuum.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like you guys have definitely done a lot of important research. And you have a very accomplished and prominent career. And I guess that leads into my final question. So what do you think you did differently compared to others that helped you become who you are today?
1: Oh my gosh, that's, uh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> a lot of people I know have been more successful than I have. Um, and so, I don't know really how successful I have been. I think the what to be successful um, one has to have a passion and and dedicate time to a particular goal, and that means making some sacrifices. It doesn't mean that you can't have a, a family life, but it may mean that um, you uh, don't you don't do some other things that when you were younger you might want it to do you know maybe spend a lot of time watching sports on TV or or things like that so um, I think it was the opportunity uh, to work at an institution that is not a large institution st Joseph's Hospital is a, it's a teaching hospital but it's not one of the smaller ones but to be able to work with people that have supported me and supported my vision. And uh, and I also believe that um, one of the advantages is I've not, not jumped around in my career. I've stayed at one place and I've been able to establish relationships and I've been able to establish what I would consider uh, is, is integrity so that people understand my motives and my motives, uh, as I said, is to uh, to do good research that I'm excited about. I, I find it fascinating. I always like to know that I've got something that no one else in the world knows. So that's an exciting thing. But uh, I think that's it. And, and one other thing that is occurring to me that that is important for uh, that. Oh, I guess we'll get to the question of advice to students or advice to anybody. You know, it's occurred to me that if you do not own your failures, you cannot own your successes. So if you blame others for your failures, then why should you uh, congratulate yourself for your successes?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful piece of advice to give to students. And with that being said, that brings us to the end of the interview. Thank you again for joining me today. That's it for this week's Sci-Section. Make sure to check out our podcast available on Global Platforms for all our latest interviews.